Hi, welcome to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This is our special year-in-review issue of The Kicker, and we'll be guided this week by Dave Uberti, CGR staff writer and senior Delacorte fellow. Hello, Dave. Hey, Kyle. So you are going to be looking at the best and worst stories of the year, as well as what we're most optimistic about? Yeah, just trying to take sort of a step back and look at the year that was some of the things that really upset us in in 2016, some of the things that that did make us feel a little better about the state of our industry. Do you have any, you know, words of wisdom going forward into the new year? I don't. I'm pretty optimistic, actually. You can put me in the optimistic camp. Good. I think this is going to be a great year for journalism. It's going to be a sort of fascinating year for politics, but I'm, you know, I've, I've written on CJR about how I think this could, we could really be entering a great moment for, for media. I hope you're right. Thanks for that introduction, Kyle. And as he said, I'm Dave Uberti, staff writer at CJR. Helping me on this look back at 2016 this week are two of my favorite guests, regulars on The Kicker, Noska Renner, a Tau editor for CJR. Noska, how's it going? Going well, and I just want to say to our listeners, Happy New Year. <laughs> and then also joining me in the booth is Pete Vernon. He's a Delacorte fellow at CGR. What's up, Pete? How's it going, Dave? Good to be here again. Yes, exactly. Our last podcast of 2016. We wish you all a Happy New Year. Um, but we'd like to take a step back and sort of look at the year that was. Uh, Kyle sounded us off on an optimistic note to start the show. Um, but we wanted to, you know, first, you know, before we get into that fluff, uh, talk ourselves onto the ledge. What are some of the stories that really upset us about 2016 in journalism? What made us the most pessimistic about the state of our industry? What things are we most concerned about going forward for our craft? Pete, uh, I want to kick it over to you. What were you looking at in 2016? What really made you itch? I mean, I think you can point to a lot of uh, individual moments of things that could have been done better. But in terms of larger trends, the thing that bothered me the most was that people don't trust us. There was a new Wall Street Journal NBC poll out, what will, when this is supposed to be last week, about the American trust in institutions. And aside from the military and police and law enforcement, we saw uh, respondents say that they don't trust institutions. And among those they trust the least are the national news media. 16% of Americans said that they have either a great deal or quite a bit of confidence in the national news media. And I think that's a problem for us going forward. It's a difficult question to start probing answers to as well, because there's always these polls that come out that say the media is incredibly distrusted. But if you pull people on individual news organizations, they ha- typically have a much higher level of trust. If, if you say, you know, do you like CNN or do you like CBS or The New York Times? Right. Or they trust Fox it's News or high. they trust MSNBC. Um, as you wrote earlier this year in a, a really nice piece that people should go check out in our archives, there is no media. Um, right. But I think I think it does, you know, bring up the broader question, right, which is like we're switching into a world where the the institutional media, the press is sort of a, a, a fixture in our politics, a freestanding democratic pillar is changing a little bit and it feels uncomfortable. Right. There's always been outlets that people of any given political persuasion are going to distrust. The, the issue for me comes up when you say to someone, um, you know, here's this, did you see the story? Here's this fact. And their response is, well, that comes from the Washington Post. Do you expect me to trust the Washington Post? I think that sort of not having a, a central trusted paper of record, whether that's the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN or ABC News, whoever you want to choose, NPR, um, if we can't trust those outlets, if we can't come to some agreement, I think we're in trouble. 
Nasuka, what about you? What are your parting thoughts on 2016 in terms of big things that, that worried you or upset you that you're going to be looking out for going forward? You asked about trends, and I've sort of been thinking about the media pre-election and the media post-election. Post-election, we all had a lot of optimism about bursting out of the media bubble and starting to listen to Trump voters starting to go out and report like on the ground more. And I've really been disappointed in the past couple of months by the lack of doing that. It's not just about going out and talking to Trump voters. It's also about understanding how the media's language is interpreted differently by different communities. So a couple examples. One is about the Russian hacking and whether or not that influenced the election. That was a huge media story post-election. But, you know, it was received in far-right communities as a total wash because the U.S. has gone out and influenced elections in every part of the world. And the fact that the media didn't really, like, see that counterpoint and include that in a lot of the stories they published and actually and just instead they just like raised the alerts about Russia influencing the election. I feel like that was a major failure. I really want to start seeing journalists asking themselves in a really nuanced way how their headlines can be read. And the second example is when Trump tweeted Obama is the founder of ISIS. People in the media said that's so silly obviously wrong, just factually incorrect. It was interpreted by other people as a statement about U.S. foreign policy and how U.S. intervention in these areas ends up creating radical groups. So even in things that seem factually false, we have to be careful in understanding how other people can see them. I brought up the now common truism, which is that you should take Trump seriously and not literally, uh, which Pete groaned at earlier. Uh, I just think, is there some amount of truth in it? Probably. Um, But I also think plenty of Trump voters took him absolutely. I mean, this is getting into a whole different conversation about going back to the election and and relitigating our coverage of it. But I think Nasca raises a really good point about considering how our stories are headlines, especially. Uh, Again, people don't uh, necessarily always read through the entire story to get the context. Uh, Understanding how those play. I just wonder, I guess, like, Taking the example you had of uh, Trump saying Obama's the founder of ISIS, how in your mind should that be reported? How should that be framed in a way that makes it, I don't know, uh, more accessible? Like, what do you have in mind, trying to take this away from pessimism into constructive criticism, what do you have in mind for like how we could do a better job with that sort of story? That's a good question. I think that in some ways, the urgency of fact-checking in the second half of the year has detracted from the strength that journalists have in contextualizing. And so thinking that the most important role for journalists is to make clear what is a fact and what is not a fact, and I will also say like lots of polls have encouraged us to, you know, make make blatantly clear what is a fact and has and have sort of set that out as like the ultimate goal of journalism right now. I think that a piece that said like, look, this is factually false, but you know, just just growing the narrative around it and using it as a way to talk about like what the U.S. actually did fund in the region, that sort of thing. 
So a Trump right. translator is needed. Right. Like increase I, the amount of information think, that people have rather yeah, than I think there generally just needs to be a recognition that people communicate in very different ways. I mean, I communicate in different ways in different circumstances. And, and I would talk to my friends at a bar differently than I would writing a story in CJR. So I think if you, if you do take everything so like a soundbite at literal face value, that, that's a good example with regard to Trump and Obama and ISIS. Obviously, that's factually incorrect, but that's a very narrow reading of it. And I, I, exactly. I don't think that if you took sort of different w- forms of communication or just different ways of talking or understanding people talk into consideration, then you would probably have a different reading of that. So we need to get better at code switching. when yeah. we're. <laughs> we also need to get better at understanding what or how people speak on social media. Right. Like Twitter is just such a different oh, yeah. thing than an interview. Right. Dave, what are you pessimistic about? I guess what I'm most pessimistic about is the state of local news. And this doesn't get enough play because it's not a sexy topic. It's not the battle of titans between national media and Donald Trump. But I mean, I would argue that it's potentially more important, the the withering away of local media. I'm in Detroit right now vacationing with my parents and they subscribe to the Detroit Free Press and it comes out three days a week, not seven. And only on Sundays does it have long stories, in-depth stories. And it's just, it's just a sad sort of commentary, sad, sad state of affairs for local news. And I, I don't know if there's anyone in the industry, and this obviously falls on us as well, who's like making a very clear argument about what exactly people are losing with the death of local newspapers. I, I don't think that we've had that honest conversation with people in a way that non-journalists can really understand. You know, I remember there were some pieces maybe a year ago about members of newsrooms being distributed around the country. Do you think that's been happening? And New York Times reporters not necessarily needing to be in New York, for instance, BuzzFeed employees being able to live in Iowa. Has that been happening? I definitely don't think it's happening. That was sort of this mythic ideal when the internet was started, that we'd have the ability to telecommunicate constantly. It certainly is possible, but I think there has been a a growing consolidation in New York, D.C., and San Francisco, particularly with new media. We can't fault people for wanting to live in New York or D.C. or San Francisco. They're great towns, and it's nice to be able to, you know, be in an office with people. I think there, there just has to be, like, a greater public understanding of why the economics don't work anymore for your, your local newspaper in particular, but also to a lesser extent, local TV, local magazines and what have you. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just a problem for local newspapers. It's a problem that everyone in the industry is dealing with. Although the Washington Post might be a profitable company this year, according to their memo that was released a couple weeks ago, all media is struggling with this, whether it's print or digital and getting people to pay for content, being able to tell our our story about why this sort of work is necessary and important, I think is something everyone in the media could be doing a better job with. Right. There's like one anecdote that I'll share, which is that I was part of a panel discussion at Rutgers University last year. And this one guy came up and asked a question and basically said, why would I subscribe to a local newspaper when like Vice does way more like in-depth investigative reporting in all these war zones around the world? And my answer to him was basically that, like, that's awesome. I'm so happy that Vice is investing in journalism and they're going to all these really important places where a lot of stuff is happening. But when it comes to the end of the day and what matters to your life, it's probably going to be more what happens at your local zoning board meeting than it is at some civil war in sub-Saharan Africa. That's just harder to make money off of, let's be honest. It is strange that people know more about 
what's going on abroad sometimes than they do about their own community. And I think that's sort of a, you know, a critique of our generation in particular. Oh, definitely. Um, young people who work in white collar industries, more global facing industries and whatnot. You, you do have more either work or social ties with people who are outside of your physical space, which is a very interesting shift. And I think it has larger ramifications. I look forward to your millennial think piece takedown uh, <laughs> about how we need to do a better job buying local newspapers. I wonder, and I don't have an answer to this, I wonder if that is um, something that's always, to some extent, always been true, right? 20-somethings have social lives and have fewer ties to their local communities. I don't know if in the 1970s, a single 25-year-old guy in Detroit was subscribing to the free press. Um, but I, I think a lot of 40-something-year-old couples who had children were and are not anymore. So while definitely looking at the next generation is important for local news, for any news organizations going forward, part of the issue right now, part of the immediate crisis for local newspapers is figuring out how to create a business model that works in 2018, as opposed to 2030, when uh, us millennials are settling down and, and doing this sort of subscribing our parents uh, might not be doing anymore, but certainly that our grandparents did. This is, as you you mentioned, like an immediate crisis. Um, right. I don't think twenty five year olds are going to save us uh, from from anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm twenty five, Pete. <laughs> I, I know that's why. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, they would like to think that they will be the savers. Now, since I'm standing on the ledge, looking at was once a great industry. Just kidding. I would like someone to to help talk me off of it. So. Looking at 2016, Nausicaa, what were some of the bright spots in journalism? Trends, storylines, uh, new sorts of press behavior that you found particularly good for the state of our industry and what we do? So one thing that I saw over the course of the year that I'm actually pretty excited about, it's not strictly to do with journalism, but there, I think, is a groundswell happening in terms of trying to put into motion some of the regulations on the internet that we haven't seen so far. So we saw net net neutrality this year, which sort of made internet into a common carrier and, you know, prevented monopolizing, especially in the latter half of the year, some of the conversations about free speech online and putting into place more of an architecture for what thus far has put been a pretty like anarchic and libertarian space. It's really satisfying to me. I think as somebody who has always been a fan of democratic institutions that online we're starting to really feel a need for them. And I'm hoping that over the course of the next year, we'll start to have those conversations more. I mean, I think in the EU, there's regulation coming down the line much faster. And I'm not even just talking about companies like Twitter and Facebook. I'm also thinking in general about, you know, the way that ads work online. And there was a report about how those bots in Russia, they so they're fake websites, but they have real ads. And they've been siphoning off like three to five million dollars a day. It's things like that where it really has to do with the flow of the entire internet. And I'm hoping that we'll start to be able to make more sense of the chaos that is in there. Are you optimistic because you think people are paying more attention to those sort of questions now? Yeah, I think people are really starting to see the stakes of them. 
I mean, just looking at this controversy over Facebook and policing fake news, there has been a huge, huge public discussion. I mean, I'm sure some people who write and think a lot about Facebook expected that. But I mean, I certainly a year ago did not expect there to be like this sort of wide ranging debate over what Facebook should do about this false information on its on its site. Also thinking about these social media sites as the public sphere and realizing that free speech doesn't just mean that anybody gets to say what they want, but also that those people who get to say what they want aren't restricting the free speech of other people who are also there. Like that's a very democratic idea about free speech that is not the same as free speech fundamentalism. And we're starting to understand like why exactly we needed that kind of institution in the first place. Right. Rights that go with corresponding responsibilities. Exactly. Yeah. And it's going to be messy to get there. But I think you make a good point that at least we're starting to have those conversations, even if they've been occasioned by some disturbing trends that we've seen throughout this year and in the past. Yeah. And even if it's not happening in society or the economy, (laughs) understanding that like restrictions and regulations can be really supportive of a civic environment. All right, Pete, what do you think about 2016? In part, my optimism is forward-looking rather than looking back. Um, I do think it's worth saying that, you know, in this discussion of primarily the campaign and the election, which has dominated just the last, it feels like, years of our lives, there were some great stories. There was great reporting and important investigative reporting that was done all over the place. Uh, You know, certainly you have people like, everybody's favorite, David Farenthal at the Washington Post, who got a lot of the attention for his coverage of the Trump Foundation. But there was good reporting by the New York Times on Trump's taxes. There were investigations into his business conflicts. There were perhaps overhyped, but deeply reported stories on uh, certain concerns about Hillary Clinton. So there was good reporting out there. In terms of what I'm optimistic about going forward, it's that we seem to be entering, and obviously we we can't know for certain yet because it hasn't happened, but we seem to be entering a time in which there will be the space and the opportunity and I think a great need for really good, deeply reported journalism that challenges those in power, that informs the public about things that are affecting their day-to-day lives. You can just look at the agencies and the people that are being chosen to head them. You have a head of the energy department who four years ago wanted to shut down the energy department. You have a secretary of education designate who is pretty opposed to public education as it has existed in the U.S. for the the better part of the 20th century. The EPA, there, there are going to be showdowns. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be pushback against some of the regulations that have been put in place. And it's going to take good reporting and good writing to explain that, uh, to explain to people exactly what's going on. Right. We were talking about this a little bit earlier in the office today, uh, which is that, you know, I think immediately after the election, a lot of journalists were doing some soul searching as to why they got into the industry, what impact they could have, why there was so much public distrust. One of my optimistic takes to piggyback off of you, Pete, is that I think there is this sort of growing realization that like, this is why we got into the business. Like, the game is the game. Like it's going to get a little bit more difficult now. Uh, there's going to be more opposition to us from official sources, from the government, or what have you. But this is like really an opportunity for us to like make up a lot of lost ground. It seems that people are turning toward, you know, trusted news organizations now at a, a little bit greater of a clip than they were before the election, which to me is 
is heartening as well because it it, it seems to show at least a token sort of, sort of realization by by people in the public who maybe weren't you know subscribers to X publication before, but now feel as if they're going to do just a little bit more to you know inform themselves, pay a little bit more money to get news at their doorstep or in their you know email inbox or whatever. Right. If you look to the past, when there is a moment that has called for great journalism. Sometimes the industry has answered. Everybody cites the golden age of the 1970s with Watergate and when the media was kind of in its at its heights of, of popularity and trust within the public. Um, I think in our lifetimes, one of the moments in which the media has been needed and has failed or did fail was in the lead up to the Iraq war. You know, the reporting that took place at that time just in hindsight does not live up to the best intentions of our profession. And it feels like, again, it feels like we're entering in a moment where great reporting might be called for. And uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that people are ready to answer that call. I hope we cheered you up, Dave. (laughs) Are you down from the ledge? (laughs) I think I'm still kind of on the ledge. There's just like a dual worry in my mind, right? One is financial. No one has found out sort of a viable long-term business model to fund good journalism. The other this idea of public trust. I think we're really sort of going into uncharted waters at this point with a hyper-politicized, hyper-partisan environment in Washington, D.C. and across the nation, uh, but then also a very fragmented media. So I think that does leave you some room for legitimate news organizations who like uphold journalistic values and norms of verification and you know objectivity and detachment and whatnot. But it also allows a lot of room for like really bad players to come in um, who don't care about journalistic norms or even know that they exist. I feel a lot of trepidation sort of going forward in this new environment. But as you said, I mean, this is I mean, this is a, a huge opportunity. And I think people are gradually realizing that this is sort of like an inflection point or a potential inflection point that could be for the better. So I think in that sense, if I'm going to be optimistic and looking ahead to 2017, I'm saying that journalism has a huge opportunity to come through for the American people, and I really, really hope it does. And welcome back to our final segment. We wanted to have a little bit of fun with this one. Uh, earlier in the month, I spent some time compiling, along with the rest of the CJR staff, a year-end list of some of our favorite journalism of the year. This was a mix of accountability stories, multimedia presentations, local news, international news, what have you. We try to have a good mix. It's on CJR.org and would love to hear some feedback on what we came up with. But I wanted to take you know 10 minutes here as well to just go through a couple of our personal favorite stories stories and why they you know, hit us so hard, why we thought that they were such great journalism. I guess I'll kick it over to you, Pete. You talked a little bit about a story in the New York Times Magazine on Brooklyn Public Schools. Tell us what that was about. My favorite story of the year, Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece from the June 9th edition of the New York Times Magazine, uh, which is titled Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is uh, an amazing magazine writer who was previously at ProPublica, and some listeners might know her from a series she did with This American Life in the summer of 2015 about segregation, um, specifically focused on the St. Louis schools. She has this amazing ability to make education reporting vibrant and alive and immediate in a way that I, as a former teacher who taught in the Bronx for four years and never taught 
one white student. This sort of reporting is needed. It's needed not just inside the fold of uh, a newspaper, but on front covers of magazines and on A1. And the points she makes in this article are historical and also present. She, as the title implies, was choosing a public school for her daughter. Uh, She lives in Brooklyn, had the option to send her to the local public school or to look at non-public options, whether that's charters or private schools, um, and faced this really tough decision because she had been reporting on this. And she felt like she had kind of... She knew all the bad stuff. Yeah, she knew all the bad stuff, but she had also been reporting from a perspective and kind of drawn her line in the sand talking about you know, the value of integrated public schools, of saying you can't because you're middle class just pull your children out of local schools that causes bad results for other families who can't afford to do that. And then when she, as a New York Times Magazine staff writer, was faced with that decision, she realized this is difficult. And ultimately, she did decide to send her daughter to the local public school and says in her piece, I'm still worried if I made the right decision but I know that I made the just one. Yeah, it's just a really beautiful piece of writing. And I just wanted to circle back on something that you touched on, which is that I feel like education is one of these interesting topic areas where either your your kids are in the school district, so you are like very involved in sort of the, the comings and goings of various administrators or the happenings at your local public school, or you're like me who lives in sort of the boundaries of the largest public school district in the country, but really doesn't know anything that's going on at New York City public schools because I don't have a kid who's in the school system. So I'm curious, from your perspective, Pete, since you taught for a couple of years in the Bronx, what, what, what's sort of like your broad critique of, of the way education and public education in particular is covered in, in news media? You have this experience that every person in America in, in the potential audience base has experience with, right? Either they have a child in school or they themselves attended school. But too often this sort of coverage, and there, I, I want to make it clear, there's good coverage going on. Here in New York, there, the major newspapers do a solid job covering it. There's also outlets like Chalkbeat, uh, the Heckinger Report. If people want more education reporting, they should go check them out. But it is tough. It's tough to get a 20-something-year-old or, uh, you know, a a childless 40-year-old to say, hey, this stuff interests me. Or, to be honest, a parent who sends their kids to private school. Because while the backbone of America is public education, a lot of the people who are in decision-making roles or, you know, the sort of people that we think of as the the coastal elite aren't sending their kids to those schools. So you have this divide that it's tough to bridge and it's tough to get people's attention. And one of the reasons I chose this piece was because I think Nicole Hannah-Jones does a great job doing that. Uh, And I I hope for more pieces like that. What about you, Nasca? You suggested a New Yorker piece that you were pretty excited about. What struck you about that and why should people read it? So I chose uh, President Trump's first term, which is a piece by um, Evan Osnos in The New Yorker from September. I was extremely impressed by it because he turned what could have been a quite speculative piece into an incredibly solid piece of reporting. You know, I think he synthesized a lot about Trump's style of speaking and his campaign style and the words that he uses and the way that he hedges and sort of showed us how that actually will inform a presidency but also the way in which he reminded me of the power that the president has. Obama has been so in the shadows 
like not in the shadows in an insidious way, but in terms of battling Congress and and using executive orders. And it's all sort of hidden from me, the power that the president has, especially in terms of foreign policy. The small things that Trump says, like when he said in the campaign that he was encouraging South Korea and Japan to develop nuclear weapons and how that was already influencing their policy, that kind of granular reporting combined with a reminder of the executive power in general, I just found so forceful. Right. And I, I think I think that was a good sort of antidote at the time uh, to a lot of media coverage, which I thought took for granted that Hillary Clinton would be president. I thought very broadly speaking, there was like a dearth of coverage that actually grappled with this idea of Donald Trump becoming president. What this piece did successfully is sort of walked through of what this would actually mean in practice. I'm not really sure why it was why there was such a dearth of reporting, but this piece really did it for me. Can I read a paragraph? Sure. Actually, it's overlapping two paragraphs, but he says, During the 2008 campaign, the Obama transition team distributed a memo to staff members on, quote, what qualifies as a promise. It explained, quote, words like will, would, create, ensure, increase, eliminate, are good signals of specific policy commitments. First of all, that's so interesting that the Obama administration basically sent a memo telling people how to interpret <laughs> right. their memos. Right. When Trump talks about what he will create and what he will eliminate, he doesn't depart from three core principles. In his view, America is doing too much to try to solve the world's problems, trade agreements are damaging the country, and immigrants are detrimental to it. He wanders and hedges and doubles back, but he is governed by a strong instinct for self-preservation and never strays too far from his essential positions. I think there, Osnos, he hits the nail on the head. He sees all of Trump's rhetorical strategy, and he sees the core of it, and he looks at his personality, and he wraps it all up into this one image of like, yes, these are the three core principles, but nobody else has summed them up for us like that. I remember reading it and having that reaction, having been so caught up in the horse race, or looking back even at whether it was Clinton or Trump, looking back at what they had done in the past, what they had said in the past, all of a sudden this piece came out. It really was striking just to conceive of the idea, especially at that time, of President Trump. Like, what would that actually mean? And then the reporting that went into this, uh, which he started, I think, back in the summer, was so deep and so impressive, and especially now, a, uh, a nice guidebook for what we should be expecting. Dave, what was your favorite piece? Mine's a twofer. Um, and both of them are sports pieces, specifically baseball pieces, both published on ESPN.com the day after, or I should say the day of, uh, the Cubs winning the World Series on November 3rd. I'm a huge baseball fan. I used to play it growing up. And the reason why I think it's the best sport and sort of a national pastime is because it's, it, it's the one that most mimics life. It's all about waiting for these big moments, these inflection points on which the game can hinge on. Most of the game is slow, it's boring, it seems like you're sort of plodding along, but then with a crack of a bat, you're right into the thick of things and something major happens. You need to be able to sort of contextualize sort of why that happened, why that matters. Um, And I think sort of baseball journalism and baseball writing in particular does a really good job of that. It allows writers to take narrative license in a way that they can't with other sports, which is very special. There's obviously people who overdo it. But in wake of the Cubs' victory, there's two reports on deadline, one by Jason Stark, one by Wright Thompson at ESPN.com, which both just really reminded me of why I love baseball, of you know why these little moments can matter so much 
not only for like the importance of the game, but also within people's lives. Uh, Wright Thompson, who's a senior writer at ESPN Magazine, wrote a analysis of like spending 24 hours in and around Chicago leading up to and immediately after the Cubs winning. And he talks with all of these people who have been, you know, waiting 10, 20, 50 years for a Cubs World Series win. And just what this stupid game that went into the wee hours of the morning on November 3rd, what it all meant for them and their, you know, their lives and their relationships and what have you. And that really hit me hard. It reminded me why I got into journalism, which is not just about holding p- people in power and accountable. It's not about these grand political analyses. At a very basic sense, it's also about just making people feel something about what's happening six inches in front of their face. So I really can appreciate sports writers for doing that on a frequent basis, and in particular, these two guys, uh, Wright Thompson and Jason Stark for ESPN, with regard to the Cubs' victory. Reading that Jason Stark piece again, I got goosebumps reading through it. Yeah. One of the things I marveled at with this is they were writing on deadline. Wright Thompson's story starts at 8 in the morning, the day of the game, and ends at with him being dropped off at his hotel by the guys delivering the Chicago Tribune newspapers at four in the morning the next morning. Um, And then he sits down and writes this piece that gets posted a few hours later. Both of them, their ability to write on deadline to create these beautiful, emotionally driven narratives uh, are really impressive. Just going back down my biographical wormhole here, I can pinpoint the exact moment where I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And that was reading John Updike's account in The New Yorker of... God's Don't Answer fan mail? Well, you, bu- you butchered the quote a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah, give it. <laughs> but it's John Updike's account of Ted Williams' last game as a Boston Red Sox player in 1960, and he hits a home run in his last at-bat at Fenway Park, and he circles the bases, and there's no one in the, the stands that are cheering. They're just clapping. They're applauding because they've seen greatness, and it's going to be the last time that they ever see it. And he goes back into the dugout, and the fans start cheering for him to give a curtain call to, like, raise his hat one more time in Fenway Park. And then Updike has this line where he says, gods don't answer letters. I remember reading that as probably a 17-year-old. Man, it felt like I'd, I'd been, like, kissed for the first time again. And, and, you know, it's easy to forget those moments that really made you think about why you wanted to get into the business, why you wanted to do this thing. You know, me personally, I forgot a lot of that over the course of the election where there's just, like, so much bloodless political analysis. To have something that, like, really feels like it has a heartbeat, like pieces of writing like this, I don't know. I, I just don't have the right words for describing. How yeah, we do get caught up sometimes in, in what are considered the, the big picture things, the serious analysis. Uh, and it's nice to be reminded just the power of words and why a lot of us got into this. I'm not a sports fan, but I will say that watching that final game when the Cubs won the World Series, I was getting real time analysis from friends around me. Of course. But it is amazing the way in which having somebody next to you who is able to tell a story about the thing that is happening in front of you is able to get you invested and to really parse what's going on. And I probably, I mean, that was an amazing game. I probably appreciated it way more than any sports game I've ever seen just because there are people around me who are able to create that narrative. So I think that's a very beautiful way of putting the journalistic enterprise. Right. Real-time journalism right there. Yeah. That's a that's a nice line to end the year on. Beautiful <laughs> interpretation of the journalism enterprise. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. We hope you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also go to cjr.org and sign up for a membership for Columbia Journalism Review. It's 50 bucks a year to support good journalism. You get a few print issues. You get a weekly newsletter written by yours truly and some other special features from our editor and publisher, Kyle, along with the rest of the CJR staff. Thanks again for kicking it with us, and we'll see you in 2017.